Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 201, air date December 27th, 2017. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Um, on Tuesday of this week, I promised all of you that I'd be doing a discussion on net neutrality. Um, what's interesting about this topic, it's a very, very complex topic. So I want to take it slow and I want to uh, discuss it in this part one of this series on something that we all uh, know, which is email. Email gives us a framework to really start understanding not only what net neutrality is, but I, what I call the nonsense of net neutrality. The re reality is that no one is really discussing what I call the citizens network, how you and I are going to really achieve freedom on the use of networks and the internet. That is not really being discussed. Instead, what's happened is that the major companies like Facebook and Google have hired their minions in the academic complex and have deviated the discussion to net neutrality. A guy called Tim Wu, by the way, who's not a computer scientist who came out of Harvard Law School, uh, knows very little really about computers, uh, built his whole career on net neutrality. So this guy really doesn't know a lot about the fundamentals or he's essentially uh, one of the minions of Facebook and Google to really deviate the discussion. And we're going to talk about that. But in a, a, a larger scope, one of the important things to understand is that we have the producers of content and the users of content. So for example, uh, you could own your own website company, you could be a YouTube person and you're creating content and you're distributing that content to consumers, which could be me or your friends or your family. And the connection or the interconnection of the framework, the software, the pipes, all that allow that between the content provider and the content creator is really what is at issue. Again, at a high level, uh, between the content creator and the consumer is what I call um, the infrastructure companies. So for example, they're the big telcos broadband companies, ISP providers, but there's also someone who's been left out of that equation, which are the software people like Google and Facebook and the browsers and all the other things in between that. What's really been going on is these guys, be it Verizon or be it Time Warner or be it Comcast or Google and Facebook, are all in their own fight for who will own that pipe or that interconnection between me and the uh, as a consumer of content and the content provider. But to really understand this, which I'll discuss next week, I'll go more into detail, let's step back into something that we all use, which is probably one of the most used mediums now, uh, trillions of emails uh, per year, uh, which is email that, that's being uh, transferred uh, all over the world. I know a little bit about email. In fact, what you're seeing here um, is a book that I recently wrote. In fact, it won one of the uh, book awards uh, for uh, small publishers called The Future of Email. And email really gives us a perspective into net neutrality. Let me uh, begin, first of all, by really stepping back and re really looking at what email is. Um, email is not simple text messaging, which is what, um, again, a lie that was promoted by the ARPANET and companies like BBNN and Raytheon and all the old guard of the military industrial complex who didn't invent email. What they did was in the early 70s, late 60s, they were doing simple text messaging. So let's really step back and understand what email is. 
Email is the electronic version of the old-fashioned paper-based inner office mail system. What you're seeing in this diagram is when I was a 14-year-old kid, as many of you know, I was given uh, a wonderful opportunity, a challenge, to convert the old inner office mail system to the electronic version while I was working as a research fellow at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark, New Jersey, which is now known as Rutgers Medical School. But what you see uh, here is in those days, in every office was always a secretary, always a woman in those days, um, who had on her desktop an inbox, an outbox, as you're seeing here, folders in the background, uh, paper clips. She had underneath her a trash can, um, and she would literally write a thing called a memo, which looked like this. It had a, a, a very particular structure, to, from, subject, and sometimes she would do carbon paper to make copies, where she would put the first bond paper, a piece of carbon paper, and write a thing called a carbon copy of that memo. So that's why if you were doing one CC or two CCs, you would list those people on the CC line. But it was a very, very time-consuming process. And then you could also do attachments, which were called enclosures. Anyway, this was the way that people collaborated in the, in, in, at that time. I, I, this was in 78. Uh, people used to write uh, these memos and they would distribute it. And that's how you hired someone. That's how you did grant applications, etc. And this memo was put into this thing called the inner office mail envelope, tied up with this little uh, red drawstring, and then distributed across the enterprise or the organization through these pneumatic tubes. Um, some of you may not have seen this. If anyone under the age of 40 has not seen this, this was in some ways a quote-unquote Ethernet before uh, the real Ethernet came along. This was sort of the piping and how things got sent around. So I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version, and I called it email. In fact, not only did I call it email, but I wrote 50,000 lines of Fortran code. Um, by the way, this is in the Smithsonian now. Um, which literally converted that all those processes, inbox, outbox, compose, reply, um, all the features that we see in every email system today. And in fact, I called it email. The only reason I called it email, as you can see here, is in those days, uh, the Fortran language only allowed six characters for the variables and the operating system only allowed five. Thus, email was not an obvious term, I can assure you, in 78. Uh, that's a picture of me with my uh, high school teacher, my mentor, my math teacher. This is, uh, appeared in the local newspaper a couple years after I developed this. And uh, more recently, uh, after my mom passed away in 2011, um, Time Magazine did an article about this called The Man Who Invented Email. Anyway, in those days, you couldn't patent software. The career politicians in Congress had no idea of what software was. They thought it was uh, uh, you know, writing a book uh, or writing a movie script. Uh, they thought it was just written text. However, in 1980, the Copyright Act of 1976 was modified so you could protect software through copyright. It was called the Computer Act of 1980. I had gone to MIT at the time, and the president of MIT advised me to copyright it. And, and there you see um, the official copyright that was issued to me. I think I was about 18 years old at the time, on August 30th, 1982, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. I share that story because, uh, A, it's a story of American innovation. Uh, this was invented in America and not at MIT, not in the military industrial complex, not at a big university, but at a small college in Newark, New Jersey. So innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by anybody. 
But the more interesting thing is after that I went on to MIT, very interested in not only uh, systems like email, but all different systems. In fact, I was very interested in systems such as biological systems. And um, I did, uh, my whole pursuit was around systems. I, 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 I did four degrees at MIT in electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and design, and also my degree in biological engineering. Um, but while I was doing my PhD, uh, one of the interesting things that happened was I was given an uh, opportunity uh, by the White House uh, to actually participate. I think we have a, a slight technical problem that one of the images is not showing up. But I was given the opportunity by the White House um, to actually participate in a very interesting competition to uh, automatically analyze email. My research work was in AI. This is in 1993. And... Uh, um, uh, what ended up happening was I ended up winning this contest, leaving MIT briefly, and I later on came back to finish my PhD, but I created a company called EchoMail. And this was my second life with email. So EchoMail was a very powerful technology to automatically read email, sort email, and analyze it. The White House in 1992, 1993 was having a problem where Bill Clinton was receiving tons of inbound email. Remember, this is in 92, 93 when email went from being an office application to being a consumer application as a web came. So the White House was receiving lots of emails. And so the White House was looking for technologies that could automatically read and route email. Long story short, they ran a contest. I ended up winning it. And then I left MIT to start a company, as I mentioned, called EchoMail, which we call the AI and email. EchoMail grew to around a $250 million company. We had uh, Fortune 1000 clients all over the world. But one of the interesting things happened was in 1997, I went to the U.S. Postal Service because I could see a major problem that was going to occur relative to privacy of you and me. Hotmail, companies like Google, other companies were getting involved in email. And in 1997, email volume overtook postal mail volume. So this was significant. So I felt in the interest of the public that we should have a postal or an email service brought to you by the Postal Service. Now, why do I say this? If you really think about what the U.S. Postal Service was, it was a phenomenal institution for freedom. Um, the First Amendment was a right to free speech for the right for each one of us to engage in uh, discussion and communication. And the Postal Service was part of that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was one of the founders of Polymath. He did many things. He felt that the Postal Service would allow you and I to communicate, or should allow you and I to communicate freely. What that meant was, if you think about what the Postal Service uh, became was, I could send you a letter, anyone, or you could send someone else a letter for a very low cost, and no one should be able to interfere with that letter. This is a key thing. No one should be able to open that mail. Uh, your privacy was protected. In fact, the Office of Inspector General was set up to oversee the U.S. Postal Service. So if anyone did intervene, it's a 20-year sentence in federal prison. So think about that. The Postal Service is quite amazing. By law, communication is protected. No one can tamper with it. So what I saw occurring in 1997 was email volume had overtaken postal mail volume and private companies like Google, um, other major companies like Hotmail, Microsoft, were literally owning our email. So think about that. Um, when you sign up for these free email services, quote unquote free, you're giving up your freedom because those companies essentially, if you read their privacy statements, own your email. Very different from the founder's vision of what the Postal Service was. 
Now, going back to the Postal Service, when I met with them, I said, look, we need a public email service that people can opt to do. Yes, they can get on Hotmail. Yes, they can get on Gmail. But we need to have a public service. Maybe we can charge $25, $50 for it. However, that email service will be brought to you by the Postal Service, which is a brand of trust and protected by the Postal Service because if anyone tampered with it, it would be a 20-year sentence. The Postal Service uh, hierarchy there thought I was crazy. They said, look, we're a 500,000 person company bigger than Walmart or an organization bigger than Walmart. We don't need uh, to be involved in email. We're in the print mail business. And that's sort of the stupidity of the Postal Service executives, very high paid, overpaid, because they didn't see that they were in the mail business, be it electronic or print. Anyway, the, the net of it is I went on to build EchoMail. We grew to a very large company. Many years later, 2011, I started seeing news come out that the Postal Service was going to go out of business. They were going bankrupt because what occurred in the 80s was um, the best pieces of the Postal Service were gutted, like first class mail, and given to companies like um, uh, major companies like uh, DHL or the real priority mail given to companies like DHL and FedEx. So the Postal Service was suffering major losses. So I went back to them and I said, look, you guys should have listened to me nearly 14 years ago. And uh, Fast Company wrote an article uh, talking about what I'd shared with them in 1997. I felt that technology could really, really save um, email. And one of those things was that um, out of that article, the postmaster, the U.S. Uh, uh, postmaster's inspector general contacted me and he said, Shiva, what's your idea? So I laid out a whole methodology for the Postal Service to really make money from email. And a lot of it I've put forward in in this book called Future of Email, which, by the way, I discuss uh, the history of email, as I just shared with you, the background on email, and the the major issues with email. But in in this book, I um, share uh, with you um, what I told the Postal Service. I gave them literally two different reports. In fact, they paid me close to about a hundred grand, commissioned me to write these two reports on how they could make money with email. One was email as a customer service utility. The other is um, using electronic communications for what I call the last mile. We submitted these reports about two, three years ago. The Postal Service did nothing because the reality is the bureaucrats of the establishment of the Postal Service do not care because these people are not entrepreneurial. But one of the key things that we need to understand when it comes to email is that right now it is in uh, a very different situation than your postal mail. The vision of the founders was that I could communicate with you, no one would interfere. The reality is the biggest violators of freedom are the private companies like Microsoft, like Gmail, which no one has talked about in the quote-unquote net neutrality nonsense discussion because they're really a nonsensical discussion. The real issues are about privacy and who can block and observe our email. There's obviously other stuff which I'll discuss next week. But the truth is major companies like Gmail and Hotmail own your email. The other pieces to this is that we're going to see the era of haves and have-nots and we need to stop this. We need to have what I call a citizen's network way beyond the nonsense of net neutrality. Hillary Clinton got her own personal email server, if we all remember. Uh, the New York Times interviewed me on this, and I thought that it was criminal. She should be thrown in jail. And what we see is the very wealthy will start having private email servers, and all of us will be on, quote-unquote, free 
email servers like Hotmail and Google where they can observe so the wealthy will have their private email servers. In this case, Hillary Clinton had her private email server in, in her bathroom, uh, in her kitchen, protecting her, and the rest of us will be uh, relegated to Google and Facebook and others, or, or Google and Hotmail, et cetera, observing our email. So that's really what we really want to focus on. We talk about not net neutrality, but citizens network. And I'll, I talk about in this book, and we'll pursue this discussion next week, the way out of this is that we need to, first of all, bust up Gmail, bust up Microsoft, uh, bust up Facebook. These are public. They should become public utilities. The other thing we need to do is we need to create what I call mesh networks, networks that are citizen networks. That means uh, beyond AT&T, beyond Verizon, they're networks owned by you and me. And the third piece of this is a postal service needs to get re-engaged. They have a lot of real estate, a lot of infrastructure. They have also the legal framework to protect our email. So again, if you get time, uh, Christmas is coming, you can get Future of Email, uh, uh, support our campaign, Shiva for Senate, but most importantly, recognize that net neutrality is just a buzzword that was created by an academic to actually distract us from the major issues of Citizens Network and real digital freedom Let's look at email first. We don't have free email anymore. What we have is free email that's owned by private companies. Thank you very much.